Jordan said earlier, um, we are shooting towards, and of course everything is always out of our control and in the Lord's control, but we're shooting, um, Lord willing, to be able to, on the 28th of June, be our first Sunday back to regular 9.30 and 11 o'clock services with life groups going on um, as well and, and children. And as of right now, we're shooting for July 1st to be our Wednesday night, first Wednesday night with kids, um, preschool, all of those things, youth meeting together and shooting, of course, going strong towards Vacation Bible School. So that is, Lord willing, the plan as of right now, and we're just going to trust Him um, as we proceed forward. So uh, welcome to week two of our Stand series that has us walking through some of the book of Daniel. And I say some because we're not walking through all. We're doing seven weeks, and we're not really just even doing it in order. We're kind of all over the place um, but Daniel gets really deep. It's very prophetic. And because we're following Daniel with Revelation, and Revelation covers a lot of the prophecy of that Daniel covers, we're going to save that for the book of Revelation and uh, just really kind of do a surface study of, of Daniel and this series called Stand. And we're calling it that because in it we see followers of God um, standing. Ultimately, what we see is we see God's plans and purposes forever standing. And that's kind of the, the whole theme of this book, the sovereignty of God. And through this book, we are being called to take our stand in the middle of God's plans and God's purposes that have never or will never fail. So here's what we know. When King Nebuchadnezzar conquered the nation of Israel, he took several young people to Babylon to train them, to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. Daniel, who was a teenager at the time, between 12 and 15 years old, remained in Babylon throughout the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, throughout the reign of his son Belshazzar, throughout the reign of Darius the Mede when the Medes came in, and throughout the reign of Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian. So Daniel, although a foreigner in this land, influenced all four kings and basically became a person of great authority. He um, never turned from his commitment to God in so much as that the phrase the God of Daniel echoed in the chambers of all of those four um, pagan kings. So the God of Daniel was mentioned showing the power um, that was given to Daniel. It was not his power, not his strength, not his wisdom, but it was God's doing. And last week we saw Daniel standing out in the midst of an evil culture that wanted nothing more than for him to give in and find his identity in it. And this morning we're going to see Daniel standing up, which is, of course, why we're calling today's message, Stand Up. It just kind of makes sense to do that. And here's what we know, and please don't miss this. We are absolutely called by God to stand up in this world against those who hold false beliefs concerning God and against those who hold false beliefs concerning themselves. We are called to stand up proclaiming the good news, and we are also called to stand up proclaiming the bad news to those who continually reject the message of, of good news. And the issue at hand is that we are called, get this, to stand up in love. To stand up in love. Oh, how prone we are to declare our thoughts and our opinions not in love and to a people that we really don't love. And there is so much wrong with that statement. First of all, our opinions can't save anyone. Only the gospel can do that. And any time that we are sharing what we think to be true or our opinion to people that we don't love, not in love, nothing good will come out of it. So we've got to be careful that we make sure we continually point people not to our thoughts and our opinions as if we think we know it all or have it under control, but to the gospel. And 
I kind of got off track, so let me get back on track. So when, when the Babylonian army marched into Israel, when they conquered um, and enslaved the people of God, when they destroyed the temple, took the possessions um, from the temple, the bumper stickers that could have appeared on the back of the Babylonian camels could have read, Our God beat up your God. Because this is the way it seemed. It seemed like the Babylonian gods in this moment conquered the God of Israel. In fact, um, in Daniel 1-2, as we read last week, it tells us the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It was the Lord's doing. So God was not defeated when Babylon came in. The people of God were defeated, and they were defeated because he gave them over to Babylon. Now the question becomes, why? And the answer is this, because for 490 years, God's people were proud and they defied him. And finally, the wick of God's patience burned to its end, which um, God has every right to stop being patient. God has every right to allow his patience to run out. And in doing so, it caused God to use a wicked leader and a wicked people. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most infamous rulers recorded in Scripture, along with Pharaoh of, of Egypt who enslaved and tortured the children of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most notorious pagan monarchs um, in the Bible. But there is a strange, weird footnote in history when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar. While he was an enemy of the descendants of Abraham, meaning he was an enemy of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar accomplished something truly amazing. He is directly responsible for the contents of an entire chapter in the Bible. You might wonder what chapter that is. Daniel chapter 4. Um, Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. It's an amazing thing, making him the only pagan monarch to be so extensively quoted in Scripture. And this is a chapter where Daniel stood up against a king who just didn't get it, but ultimately this is a chapter where Nebuchadnezzar is saying, God stood against me. And God stood against him and conquered his will, his heart, um, and his mind. And this chapter not only highlights the lengths that God is willing to go to get someone's attention, it also highlights the, the pride that fights against God's purposes. And oh, how pride continually fights against the pursuits of God. Just like Pharaoh and Exodus, Nebuchadnezzar continually hardened his heart against the graciousness of God. And the God who wanted his mind, who wanted his will, ultimately who wanted his heart. And here's the deal. God gave old Nebi basically two options. Plan A, humility. Plan B, humiliation. And old Nebi chose plan B. He chose to be humiliated. Yet God has many ways. Don't miss this. God has many ways of reaching people who seem bent on their own destruction. And God graciously invites us to be a part of his plan for reaching them. It's a beautiful picture of what God does. So let's look at his word now. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand. We're going to have a lot of reading here. So we're going to get through this chapter. We're going to begin with verse 4 of chapter 4 and read through verse 33. And it says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, because he's writing, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in Bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, 
in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it, in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches. All flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be... For those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king." that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, 
And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place or dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Let's pray. Father, Lord, humble us today. Humble us. Help us to humble ourselves in this moment before you and help us, God, to see in you standing against pride and falsehood and Daniel standing by your command against those things. Help us also by your your spirit to stand up, to stand up and help us to see what it is, Lord, through this passage that we have to stand up for. And what we can stand in, or just speak by your spirit through your word, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So here's what we know. Last week we were in Daniel 1, and Daniel was probably around 15 years old. In Daniel 4, he's probably now um, 45 to 50 years old. So a lot has gone on between chapter 1 and chapter 4. Here's what we know. We don't know a lot, but in chapter 2, um, Nebuchadnezzar has his first dream and he sees this statue and it's about kingdoms and Daniel comes on the scene and tells him the dream and the interpretation that his kingdom would fall. There's only one kingdom that will stand forever and we're going to be um, in Daniel 2 on July 5th. Then in Daniel 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge statue, tells everybody to um, bow to it. If they don't, they'll be thrown in a furnace. Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. And of course, we'll be dealing with that, I believe, on the 19th of July. So a lot has happened between chapter 1 and chapter 4. But this chapter, as I said, strangely enough, is written by um, Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar this crazy dream. And I think about how many of you guys ever have crazy dreams? Brother Curtis, you, your hand should go higher. Uh, you know, we have crazy dreams, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't have this dream like us because he ate Mexican food or Italian food. It just uh, didn't agree with him. You know, he had this dream because God was giving him a dream. Now, let me just be careful here. Not every dream that we have is God's message to us. So don't, please don't try to get up every morning wondering what, what I wonder what God is trying to tell me through this dream. Not er, some dreams are because you just had bad food or because you have a lot on your mind um, and those things run rapid in our minds, but God gave Nebuchadnezzar this crazy dream, and this dream freaked him out so much that he called his astrologers and magicians and others to interpret this dream. He saw this incredibly large, strong tree, just like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, that reached into the heavens and was visible from all the ends of the earth. It had beautiful leaves that fed everyone. Animals found shade under its um, cover. The birds lived in its branches and were fed from it. If this tree represented King Nebuchadnezzar, and it did, then what a testimony and what a witness to his greatness and the glory of the kingdom that he was over. However, tragedy was on the way. This is the point here. In his vision, while dreaming in bed, an angel came down from heaven, described as a watcher. The only time an angel is described as a watcher is here in the book of Daniel, in all of the Old Testament. So this watcher's message was ominous. Chapter four, or excuse me, verse 14, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. 
And verse 17 is the key, and we hear this over and over again, is the key to the purpose of the chapter, to the interpretation of the dream. It shows the whole point. Verse 17 says, By the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know the most high rules. The whole point of this dream is that the one who had it and everybody else would know there is a God in heaven who is God alone. And I suspect that King Nebuchadnezzar had a strong inkling about what this dream meant. I mean, I'm pretty sure he knew what this dream meant. I think a 10-year-old could understand probably what this dream means, but still he pleads with Daniel to provide the interpretation while acknowledging three times, verse 8, verse 9, verse 18, that the spirit of the holy gods um, lived in him, meaning there's something different about Daniel than everybody else. So Daniel, filled with the Spirit of God, did not prove disobedient to God, but stood up. Even regardless of the consequences that could come, he stood up. So with the time remaining, I want us to unpack three truths of how Daniel stood up and how we, who are filled with the same Spirit as Daniel, are able to stand as well in the midst of the world that we live in. So the first truth is this, stand up by declaring the message of God. So stand up by declaring the message of God. Initially, Nebuchadnezzar calls for magicians, enchanters, astrologers, um, but it was to no avail. I love this because some versions say that these who um, Nebuchadnezzar called says they couldn't interpret the dreams, but some versions say they wouldn't interpret the dreams, meaning they refused to. And when we hear the dream, it's easy to believe that they probably knew what was happening. They probably knew what the dream meant. Like I said, this dream is pretty easy to dissect. So they probably knew, yet they refused to tell the king bad news because Nebuchadnezzar was famous for actually killing the messenger. You know, we've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Well, he shot the messenger all the time. So they didn't want to be that individual. And then we're led to wonder then, so why was Daniel last? And some say, well, Daniel was last because Nebuchadnezzar forgot about him. Others say, which I agree with this, is that Daniel was last because Daniel had already interpreted one dream in Daniel chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the interpretation because it was bad for him, and the last thing he wanted is to be told again, you're going to fall. That's the last thing he wanted. It's amazing how some people, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, there's people in my life who won't call me because um, sometimes they get bad news. They don't like what I have to say, so they don't, they don't call much. And when they do call, it's because they hit a last resort, and oftentimes they eventually go and do what they want to do in the first place and ignore um, all, all of that, but that's a whole other message for a whole other day. But here's the deal. Daniel stands before the king. He does not stutter. He does not stammer. But instead, like Moses before Pharaoh, like Elijah before Ahab and the prophets of a bell like John the Baptist before Herod, like Jesus before Pilate. Daniel stands before Nebuchadnezzar and tells him not what he wants to hear, but what he must hear, what he has to hear. And he says this in verse 21, the tree you saw, then in verse 22, it is you. It is you. You are the tree. And he says, you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and seven periods. Now, some people believe that means seven years. Other people believe that means a perfect amount of time. So seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know the most high rules. And here's the beauty. Daniel had the courage to take his life in his own hands because he had already placed his life in the hands of God. 
He had already placed his life in the hands of God. So Daniel stands before the king, get this, not because he was arrogant and wanted to correct the king, not because he was arrogant and the king needed to hear his opinion, not because he thought he was better than the king, not because he wanted to see the demise of the king. Daniel stood up to the king because he loved the Lord and he wanted the king above all things to know this God. Think about that. Is that different than sometimes why we stand up to people? We stand up to people because we want to be right. They have to hear our opinion. We have to get it out there instead of, let me tell you what I believe. Let me tell you what the Lord says because I love him and I want you to know him. And this is exactly what Daniel's doing. I appreciate one theologian's insight when he says this, we must be willing to share the bad news with people that they are out of sorts with God even as our hearts break for them. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with this pride, the human tendency to push him aside and think that we are the measure of all things. We must be willing to say why God works against them. We must be ready to call them to repentance and offer hope. Daniel did all that, and then the text stops. We are not told what the king said on that day. In fact, the verses that follow take the reader into the future. Clearly, God didn't feel any need for us to know how this private witness was received. He wanted us simply to see that it was given. Think about that. We don't know how it was received, but we do know it was given. Daniel didn't shirk from speaking God's word into the life of the most powerful man in the world. And in so doing, he gives us an example of the backbone needed for us to be faithful when the opportunity comes into our lives. And it's going to come because, get this, God is in the business of revealing himself to people. So God's in the, in the business of revealing himself to people all around us. But here's a reminder. When we declare the message of God, we are not responsible for the results. We're not responsible for the results. We're only responsible to be obedient to God's message. We speak a message that saves, that restores, that heals, and we trust God with the results. We trust him with the results, and we confront people with the message of God, not because we're better than them. Listen, if God is giving you a message to someone, it's not because you're better than them. You're not. We are all on equal footing at the foot of the cross, and all of us are under God. We confront them because we love them. And let me ask this question. Has God given you a message to share with someone? Now, in one sense, please don't sit here and play ignorant and go, no, I don't think so. Because there's this message called the gospel that God has given for us to tell everybody. So don't sit here and play stupid. No, I don't think so. We're all called to share the gospel with all that we come in contact with. But let me ask you another question. Is there a message that God has laid upon your heart to give to someone and you are refusing to do so? Are you willing to go against the will of God? Are you willing to keep your mouth shut even though you know God has told you to speak? Even though God has called you to say something, it might be to a husband or wife, it might be to a child or grandchild, it might be to a neighbor or co-worker, it might be to a sibling. I don't know who it is, but here's what I know. If you know that God has given you a message to speak, don't be cowardly and back down. Do what God has called you to do and trust him with the results. Amen. Trust him with the results and do it in love. Do it in love. So we stand up by declaring the message of God. Secondly, we stand up by calling for repentance before God. 
Stand up by calling for repentance before God. And this is part of the message. I, I get that. But I wanted to make this separate so we could drill down a little bit. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, says Daniel, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. He's saying, stop it. Stop your sin. Break it off. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Charles Spurgeon defined repentance this way. He said, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes a man love what he once hated and makes a man hate what he once loved. Repentance makes us love what we once hated and hate what we once loved. And think about this. For the unbeliever, so for the unbeliever, the person in our circle that doesn't know the Lord, salvation cannot happen without repentance. Unless they repent, they will not be saved. So let me say it again. Unless they repent, they won't be saved. And you might be saying, well, Micah, I don't agree with that. Well, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with Jesus. Because in Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, meaning unless you see sin for what it is, unless you agree with God for who he is, what sin is, and turn from sin, turn from trusting yourself, and turn to God alone, receiving what he has done for your sin and my sin. Unless we do that, we will all likewise perish. And then think about this. To the believer, to the believer, growth can't happen unless we walk in repentance. Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first thesis that he nailed stated this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The first thesis, our Lord willed our life as Christians to be one of repentance. And on the surface, that sounds super bleak. On the surface, that doesn't sound like fun. Luther seemed to be saying that all of us as Christians were going to just live defeated lives, so get used to repenting a lot. But that's not what he was saying. What he was saying is repentance is the way that we progress in the Christian life. It's the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly in the character of Christ by recognizing that we constantly fall short of the glory of God. Now, I'm going to keep going here in just a second, but here's what I want you to understand. God used Daniel to call Nebuchadnezzar to repentance, and God will use you and me to call others in love to repentance, and God will use others to call us to repentance. The question becomes, what will we do when God sends someone into our lives telling us to repent? Will we heed the message or will we hate it? And most times, brothers and sisters, because of our sin, we hate it. Which explains why the world reacts the way that they do, because we react the same way. Our sinful nature wants nothing to do with repentance. Our sinful nature wants to defend itself, either by denying the sin or, get this, by attacking the messenger. Oh, does that not happen a lot? You confront someone in love and they go, well, how, 
Who do you think you are? How about you? Think about what you did five years ago. Think about this and think about that. We want to divert the attention away from ourselves. Our guilt makes us defensive. We are afraid, get this, we're afraid that if we admit our sin, we'll feel even more guilty, but the opposite is actually true. As long as we don't repent of our sins, our guilt remains. And as long as our guilt remains, we become more miserable. Guilt makes us miserable. The whole reason God calls us to repentance is because it's good for us. It's for our own good. Let me put two questions before you. Why do we hide our sin before a God who so graciously wants to forgive us? Why do we hide our sin from a God who so graciously wants to forgive us? And then why do we hide the message of repentance from those who God so graciously wants to forgive? Is repentance part of your message to others? Whether saved or unsaved, is repentance part of your message? And if not, you might be um, encouraging behavior modification instead of spiritual transformation. Christian, don't get in the habit of telling people, just trust your heart. No, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Don't get in the habit of telling people, just have faith. Everybody has faith. The problem is majority of people have faith in the wrong thing. Brothers and sisters, we can't just give these messages to people as the world is giving. Just be strong. You can do it. No, you can't do it. You can't do it. That's the whole message. You can't. But God can. God can. That is the message. And he can do it in us. But before we unpack the last truth, here's the thing. When we confront other people concerning their sin, or even when we pray about people's sin, we become so very vulnerable to pride. When we confront people, get this, even when we pray for other people's sins, it can lead us to become prideful. When we confront them, we begin to think we're better than them. And here's the deal. We might not rise to the status of old Nebi's pride, but we are more like him than we care to admit. We are more like him than we care to admit. C.S. Lewis said this, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. As long as we're looking down on people, we can't see the God who is above us. What God is about to do to Nebuchadnezzar, he can also do to any one of us who will not humble ourselves before him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, look up. Know who we are before him. And then point people past us to the one who's above us. Don't point people to yourself. You're not the answer. He's the answer. Point pe if all people get is to you, they're missing a lot. If all people get to is me, they're missing out on a lot. We don't point people to us. We point people to him. Oh, we point people to him who can save, restore, and revive. So stand up by calling for repentance before God. And then lastly, stand up by exalting the judgment of God. Now, I want to be very careful about what you hear over the next few minutes. Stand up by exalting the judgment of God. And what that doesn't mean is just walk around going, well, I'm not the one going to hell. You are. And then walk off. That's not how we live our lives. That is not what we're saying. But here's the deal. The hammer of God's judgment came down, and it came down with a vengeance. One commentator put it this way. 
Nebuchadnezzar is like Adam and Eve who, when confronted with another tree, instead of becoming gods, were banished from Eden. Look at verse 33 again. Immediately, immediately Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. God taught Nebuchadnezzar and us, by extension, that pride is a form of insanity. Hear this. Pride is a form of insanity. Pride is a complete failure to understand that God is God alone and that He is the sovereign one over all the world. He is in charge. There is none beside Him, like Him, equal to Him. He is one and only. And the tragic tale of Nebuchadnezzar is that when we fail to repent of our sin, when we fail to admit our errors, when we fail to turn to God, we start to lose our minds. Now, you might be saying, well, I don't, I don't believe that. Let me, what I'm about to say, I'm going I'm to try to tread very lightly here, and I'm not putting everything together, but there, some mental illnesses are physiological. Some mental illnesses are circumstantial. Yet some mental illnesses are spiritual. Spiritual. You don't believe me? Read Romans 1. In Romans 1, we are told that God gives people over to a depraved mind because those people won't repent, won't believe the revelation that God has given. So God gives them over. You know what it says in Romans 1? Basically, it says this. They start acting like animals. Just like what we read here. What did, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He, his pride pushed against God. He rejected God, and he became an animal. In the same way, Romans 1 says that when we refuse, when we refuse to worship God, we begin to worship ourselves. And then we begin to worship animals and all kind of other things to where God gives us up to do things that he never intended for us to do. This is the case for Nebuchadnezzar who now finds himself living outside with the hair of a madman. His fingernails are like claws and he thinks he is an ox. That is mental illness at its finest. Think about this. All his wealth, all his power, all his dignity gone in a moment because he stands up and says, all of this is my doing. And God said, not so fast, my friend. I don't think so. And it's a good reminder to all of us that when we get too big for our britches, that when we begin to believe that our abilities, our positions, our possessions, or anything that we have, including our salvation, is our doing, when we begin to think that way, then we are on a path of pride and it can only end in destruction. It can only end in destruction. That's what the Bible says. It can only end that way if we will not repent. So in Nebuchadnezzar's case, God took it all away from him out of love so that Nebuchadnezzar would turn to him. And thankfully, that's what he did. Look at verse 34. So we didn't read it, but we've got to read it now. Verse 34. At the end of, the, of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, don't miss this last verse, verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, hear this, and those who walk in pride, he is able to. To humble. What a lesson. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. But don't miss this. When we read this story, don't just meditate on God's judgment. Meditate on his mercy. Meditate on his mercy. And what I mean by that is this. The fact that God would warn anyone is mercy. It's not how dare you judge me. No, it's mercy when we tell people what's coming because of pride or sin or um, refusing to repent. Telling them what's coming is not pride ourselves. It's mercy. It's mercy. We're wanting them to see what's coming. And so here's the deal. In the face of arrogance and murderous self-glory, God has every holy reason to wipe Nebuchadnezzar from the face of the earth. Everything this worldly ruler stood for was an abomination to a holy God. And it should stun us, and yet it should rejoice our hearts that God stooped first to warn him. And then God stooped a second time to restore him. Don't miss that. God stooped once to warn him, and then God stooped again to restore him. Him. Therefore, we humbly exalt the judgment of God while never forgetting to extend the mercy of God. We don't just preach judgment just for the sake of judgment. We, we preach judgment for the sake of God's mercy to save and change that individual from being a vessel of wrath to a vessel of God's mercy and grace. This is what we do. Let me end this way. I can't think of the humiliation of this great king without thinking about another king who was also humiliated. Yet this other king was not humiliated because of his pride. He was humiliated because of your pride and my pride. This king willingly left the splendor of eternity to subject himself to all the harsh realities of this fallen world and his suffering did not begin on a cross his suffering began when he took his first breath taking on a frail human body essentially born in a barn he was despised and he was rejected the bible says he had no place to lay his head he suffered cruel injustice he was betrayed by one close to him his body was ravaged and horrible torture he was nailed to a cross he was numbered among criminals and in death he was laid in a tomb now praise god we know the end of the story Praise God, we know how it ends, not just for that king, but for us who trust that king. But here's the deal. He did that for proud, prideful people like us. 
He did that because we cannot help ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, and we must have divine intervention. So the Son of Man came for us. He faced every temptation that we will ever face and more because he was in all points tempted, yet without sin. He never gave in. And he went to the cross and he stood up for us. And praise God, he still stands for us. He stands for us. He intercedes for us. This is his mission of what he is doing. And he does that so that through his spirit, we might stand up for him. Stand up for his name, his fame, and his purposes in this his world. Oh, to God that we would stand up. Let me show you one more slide. And I kind of ended with a question. I'm going to end the day with a statement. And think about this. Think about Daniel standing up. Think about Nebuchadnezzar giving in, refusing to repent. Then think about us on this side of the cross. And here it is for us. Here's our choice. We either stand up in this world for the sake of Christ or we fall apart in this world as we forsake Christ. We will either stand up in this world for his sake or we will fall apart in this world as we forsake him. Oh, brothers and sisters, trust him now. Stand for him now. Don't turn away from him. Don't let this world put you in its mold. Don't let this world keep you silent. Don't let this world keep you sitting. The Bible says this, we are to put our, on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. And it says this, after doing everything in order to stand, then stand. And here's the problem, brothers and sisters. We do everything. We know verses. We know Bible stories. We know all this stuff. And we have it all ready to stand. And the problem is we never stand. And that's why Paul says, don't just prepare yourself to stand. Stand. Actually do what you've been prepared to do. Stand. Stand up for the sake of his glory and his fame, knowing that if anyone rejects you they're not re or rejects the message, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting him. You're not responsible for the results, but you are responsible to tell the message to those who must hear it. I'm going to go ahead and call you now to stand up. And we're going to call the musicians, I almost said magicians, the musicians for, that'll be next week. When Pastor Jordan gives a message on Daniel 6, he'll bring the magicians in. But for this week, we're going to bring the musicians forward and enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, today, what a humbling message this is. And Father, we pray for anyone here or anyone in the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that is soaked in pride, that today would be a day of calling them, God, as Daniel did, Nebuchadnezzar, to repent turn from their sin, to love what they once hated and to hate what they once loved, to call sin for what it is, to call themselves what they are, sinners, and to call you what you are. You're a savior, the only savior of sinners in the world. And if we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. God, I pray for brothers and sisters in this room today. God, help us to more courageously share the gospel with those around us, to stand up and declare the message of God, but also, Lord, help us to be willing to, if you have put someone upon our heart that, Lord, we need to, in love, talk to God, give us the courage to do so, while at the same time, God, trusting you for the results. 
and help us, God, not to be afraid of declaring the bad news, but because the bad news helps us understand the beauty of the good news. The good news is so good because the bad news is so terribly bad. Just finish this time, Lord. Help us to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Promise my soul now to stay.